Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Lydia Dean, who's the author of Jumping the Picket Fence and the founder of Go Philanthropic Travel and co-founder of the Go Philanthropic Foundation. And today she's going to share all about uh, her worldwide journeys, her decisions to, to make those journeys, and then her desire to help others. Good stuff today. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. I'm thrilled to introduce Lydia Dean. Her story will have us exploring a blend of global travel, philanthropy, and living one's passion. At the age of 30, Lydia Dean finds herself at the top of her game professionally, yet on the verge of an emotional breakdown. She quits her job and persuades her husband, John, to bring their young family on an inspirational path around the world in search of more meaning. The family initially settles in a quiet village in the south of France where they discover the joys of leading a simpler life. Reconnecting with her early childhood dreams of humanitarian work, Lydia's adventures then take her further from the comforts of home as the young family travels extensively to areas lacking access to education and opportunity. Lydia is the founder of Co-Philanthropic Travel, a socially conscious travel company that connects people with the lesser known humanitarians of the world and is co-founder of a nonprofit called Go Philanthropic Foundation, where she and a team advocate on behalf of people who uh, basically are fighting for their basic rights. She has recently documented her extraordinary pilgrimage around the globe in the untraditional way she raised her family in a book titled Jumping the Picket Fence, a deeply insightful adventure that ultimately inspires others to follow their higher calling. So, Lydia, so glad that you're here today, and thanks for joining us. Can you say hi to everybody? Well, hello. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's such a joy to be here. Well, glad that uh, we were able to talk. The, your book is awesome. It uh, reads very easy, and um, one of the things that I told you off air is that I could actually spend forever on just the beginning. <laughs> so I didn't have that time. It was, it was, I had a tough time deciding what I was going to ask and talk about so, and focus on. So. Um, you know, Jumping the Picket Fence recounts your incredible decision to change your life's path and focus on helping others across the world. You know, let's start with something you say in the beginning of the book. This is what you say. I was listless and flat, which spilled into every aspect of my life, personally, professionally, and socially. I couldn't seem to relate to friends, you know, what they spoke about, complained about, or dreamed of having. Could you share some of your thoughts about this comment? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll describe kind of where, where I was at. I was... Um, at a point where I should have been really happy, you know, I was successful and had early success. We both did, both my husband and I did. And, you know, had two, two young kids and uh, a beautiful home, had a housekeeper. I had a picket fence that I looked at from my home office every day. And I was listless and flat. I should have been really happy and just kind of clicking my heels that, I had achieved what we're told, um, I think a lot, or at least in our generation, really encouraged to, to strive for. And I, I, I was there in that spot, and yet I was so flat, and so, not only flat, but deeply unhappy. And um, I felt 
guilty. My first reaction was to feel guilty about that unhappiness. When really now, when I look back, it was just life knocking at the door and letting me know that, that there was more out there for me. Um, but yeah, it was a very difficult spot to be in because I couldn't relate to, I couldn't relate to anybody else and nobody could relate to me. So I just kind of, um, you know, was quietly, um, going through a very pe painful period of time and, and wasn't really sharing it with anybody else because I felt like it would look like I was ungrateful for what I had. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And, it's, and it comes through loud and clear in the book. I mean, you, you're like, well, what's, you, you know where you're getting ready to travel, and, but how did you go about doing that? And that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, making a decision like that, I think people often wonder where they're going in their lives and stuff like this, but they don't make the, the choice nor make the decision happen that you do. <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's pretty powerful. So, you know, and one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about is, uh, is this in, in chapter three, it's titled fertile ground. It starts off with this quotation by Joseph Campbell. We must let go of the life we have planned so as to accept the one that is waiting for us. Why'd you choose this as the introduction to your journey to Costa Rica? Because Costa Rica was, sort of the first step out of whatever this packaged life was that we had put together. And it was an extended vacation. It wasn't, you know, a move to Costa Rica, which we ended up doing later on in the book. Um, but it was that first step out. And I think for many of us that that beginning of feels like a leap of faith. And it, um, it is a letting go of the life that we have planned for ourselves. And Yes, it was one step. It was six weeks in Costa Rica. My husband brought the business with us so that he could continue working. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't at all a ref reflection of the grand kind of path that was to unfold later um, to the places that we would go and to the building of a, um, a travel company that gives back and a foundation that is partners with, with amazing people around the world. You know, but it was one step. And that one step um, kind of, you know, allows you to free fall. And in that free fall, there's a net that catches you and you're on to, you're really on to something. But it really felt like for me, that first step was critical. And if, had I not taken that first step, I don't know if the rest really would have taken place. So sometimes you have to just bust through that, that initial um, fear zone. <laughs> I, I I, I can't even imagine these conversations because I know one of the things you talk about now, you, you knew your husband, um, you knew John for a while, right? You guys go, go I back a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. So, I mean, that's, um, and, and so I just can't imagine having, there's a little part in there where I think you, you say something about wanting to go somewhere. And when you think about Costa Rica, um, for a while, and he says something like, you what's know, a while? What's a while? Yeah, it's like that for me. That's pretty wild. I can't even imagine that conversation. And then, and then, the next step that I want to make sure I mention is because I, I could really envision these conversations. You get there and you meet the the gentleman. I think it's Jeff. And uh, <laughs> right, right, right. I forgot about him. Yeah. And uh, he and there's a conversation about looking for consistent Wi-Fi and stuff like this. And I think he says something like, "There's nothing consistent <laughs> here." And uh, there's a whole conversation about needing to get over it. But I, I, I just, uh, at some point in there, I can't imagine the conversation not happening about, okay, wh what have you done to me? <laughs> oh, yes. 
we, we had many of them. And um, he just felt as though I was destabilizing everything that we had built, not, not just I, that we had built together as a, a, a young family, but that he had built, I mean, as an individual, take, take me out of it, take the kids out of it. He had his own dreams. Um, he wanted that colonial house. Um, he wanted that picket fence and he loved his job and he loved uh, being the little league coach. And that, you know, that worked for him. He was, he was happy with that. And, and I wasn't. So there was a very deep divide between the two of us at that point. And I was basically threatening everything that he had created for himself. And um, so that period of time was very, very fragile. And that willingness to go to Costa Rica was a beautiful step on his part. And then he, he, he continues along and, and really is so open and, and wonderful that, you know, all of this, I, I feel so much of it. I, I'm so thankful for his willingness. But that step to Costa Rica allowed us the time and the space to reflect. And sometimes, like I was saying, you don't know what that roadmap is going to be, but if you can sit and shut the noise down, sometimes you're able to see what the next step is. And Costa Rica and that quiet space was fertile ground for, for us to um, discover what else might, might be there for a next step and the beginnings of creating a life um, that wasn't based on material and was, you know, a, a search for something more meaningful. Well, I, I, I just, the, the number of conversations that had to have take place in there that are not recounted in the book, just it, it makes you, you know, it, it makes it for the story that anyone who's, who's married <laughs> or been married um, understood, could understand fully uh, a little bit about some of the stressful situations that might be happening there. Well, you know, time spent in Costa Rica and then plans developed for spending a year in, is it called Provence? Provence, Provence, Pro France. Provence. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, your house sold and you, you sold your car. I can't imagine what that feeling was like, because I know there's a story there where you're trying to rent the house and you're trying to figure this out. And then suddenly out of nowhere, someone comes to, you know, decides to offer you to buy the house, but to sell the house and to sell the car and then to be going away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, funny that there again, um, you know, the best laid plans, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and the plan was to go to the South of France for a year and bring the business and have a unique experience for a year and then come back. And, you know, I just find it fascinating how, you know, our plans that we cling to will just kind of disintegrate um, before our eyes. And then you're like, well, well, what next? And if, if you kind of allow, um, if you allow things to happen, then, you know, you're put on a different, you're put on a different course and, you know, the house didn't rent. So we had to just, we had to decide, do we not do this or do we just sell it and, you know, just see where this takes us. And, you know, so much of those early years had to do with uh, risk and letting, putting fear aside and just, you know, trusting in each other and trusting in something, you know, greater than, than us. And it's just paid off um, so much in our lives to the point where we, you know, it's really reinforced our belief in something um, outside of ourselves and, and, you know, coupled with a deep trust in, in yourself that you'll be fine. That's awesome. The uh, it's, it and just right here, just, this is what I mean by in, in, just in the beginning of the book, I could spend forever on this because you, you make some leaps in faith that uh, both of you do that uh, um, 
that not a lot of people would, uh, you know, <laughs> okay, I think I'll go just to Daytona beach or something for a little bit. Not <laughs> forget going to the South of France. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, good stuff. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time traveling while you're living in France and, uh, many European countries that were nearby and then North Africa and, um, Cuba and Cambodia, and India and other places. What was one big takeaway that you had on these travels? I mean, what, what's something that really impacted you while you're going to these different countries? Um, well, that the, much of the world lives differently from we do. Much of the world doesn't have fair and equal access to the basics. And I was really, I was really kind of shocked. So during this, we spent about six or seven years during that segment uh, that was supposed to only be a year turned into six or seven. And, and we did this, tra this traveling and I'd always had these humanitarian interests, but I didn't take any action during that time other than to go and see the world and to just observe it. And in that observation, I couldn't believe what I was witnessing on the one, on the one hand, yes, this shock that, um, such, you know, such a large part of the world doesn't live like us. And that I felt, I, f I found that deeply, deeply unfair. And um, the other part was this, you know, this, this kind of warm, um, comforting feeling uh, in connection with other people who had different beliefs, had different cultures, uh, different everything, yet in spending time with them, realizing that there was something that we had together as a shared, you know, as a shared humanity. So that was, I just felt comfortable. I felt comfortable in other places. Um, and uh, I knew that I wanted to do something later that had to do with opening the door for others to feel that comfort too. Our, our world has become so divided and so angry and all about separation and um, focusing on our differences. And a unique thing about this opportunity to travel and then to work um, in the development space now is that that difference is beautiful. We have to honor it. That's what makes our, our, our world so, so rich and, and different, but, but we also have to focus on what we have together. And so I expect, experienced both those things. And, um, but I didn't take any action. It was just a lot of experiencing, a lot of touching, seeing, smelling, and just observing. And um, that was an important period, that, that non-action. There was a lot going on, I think, in my subconscious as I was just, you know, drinking it all in. You know, while you're on these journeys, you have your children with you. And uh, about uh, when you start like when you start living in France, about how old are they then? They were three and five, you know, pretty little. They start school here at age three. So that's a wonderful thing because um, both we, we put both of them into the local village schools here in, in the area and literally within six months. And I'm not kidding. They were completely fluent. It, it had to do with their, the time in life and um, their, their ability to just kind of be sponges as they, you know, went out and did their thing during the day. And it's all day school at age, you know, from age three. So, I mean, we didn't have to, to do a thing. I mean, we really struggled on our side with kind of assimilating and um, you know, 
learning the language, but they just, I mean, it was, it was, we were just in awe. They'd come home and, you know, start rattling things off. And we would just look at each other like, wow, you know, I don't know if we can go home just yet. This is, this is a bit too good. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that uh, because of, you know, doing stuff like that, it's, it's interesting that uh, um, you, you talk about, uh, you know, there's different life lessons that happen. There's different, uh, there were some issues with uh, um, kind of reconnecting if you, when you came back to the States. And I, and I think one of the things that's interesting is you make this statement, you say, um, spending any time with them would reveal the patchwork of cultures at work. And uh, so you were seeing the impact of being in lots of different places. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always comfortable. On the one hand, you're gaining this, you know, incredible experience. Um, and the kids were sort of grafted into this new, this new culture, you know, they weren't native to it, but um, they took it on and it became a part of their, a part of their beings. So, um, but, but as they were growing up here and traveling all around, they weren't in the US. So they were losing touch with what kids their age were talking about and doing. Um, so there was always this kind of feeling of where, where do, where do I belong? And I think a lot of people can relate to this with families from different places and, um, just the cultural mixes that we have within marriages and families, you know, where, where do you belong? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's played a, a quite a presence in, in my, in my personal life too, because I have an English family and was born in Canada and then married to an American and have you know, you know, lived all over now living in France. So where are you from? I, I just, I'm paralyzed because, you know, it's, it's such a blend of, of different things. So identity and belonging, I, you know, I, I've learned over my life or, or it's a complex um, topic and uh, makes us each kind of the unique beings that we are. It's interesting because I, I was in a, I was principal of a school at one time that had just in, in, an amazing number of languages spoken and uh, ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. And one of the things that the kids would ask a lot, they'd ask each other and they'd ask adults uh, is uh, what are you? And what they meant was, you know, where you come from, what country you're from, or, you know, what's your, you know, ethnicity. That's, that's what was all in that one statement. What are you? And uh, it's, it's just funny. And that's what came to mind as I was reading your thoughts in there about those you know, the, the different feelings about them being out of touch with what it meant to be American or what they were doing at the time, even though they were born here. Yeah. And I think it was, it was difficult for them during various, you know, stages in life, especially kind of young, young adulthood when we'd moved back to the States. Um, and they had this idealistic view of what in their minds of what life in the U S was going to be like, because they in France were always known as the American kids. But then when they moved back to the States, they were, you know, it wasn't as ideal as they thought because they, they didn't fit in and um, wow. that was accepted. So, but you know, as they are now in their, the older ones in their early twenties, um, that period in life where we, we traveled and where we lived abroad was by far, you know, the greatest foundation for them to be open and accepting to, um, to people who come from very diverse backgrounds. So it was, it was great. In oh, I can painful in the moment for them probably. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, that's just uh, the 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 experiences to have and to then appreciate everything um, that you come in contact with. So just just awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we talked about is that throughout your journeys, 
throughout your journeys, you came in contact with the cruelties of our world as well as the, you know, the beauty. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the desire to confront the world's problems in person? Well, I think there was part of this, number one, um, a deep passion that I had and um, that was always there in me. So in, in writing Jumping the Picket Fence, one thing that I, that I hope comes through really clear is that, you know, I, we, we probably all have our own um, special things that make us go from, and we've, we've had them from a very early age, whatever it is. And um, I now have a, a pretty big respect for the need to follow what that is and to, um, to bring it, you know, front and center in our lives. If we can't build um, a professional life around it, it should, should, should remain a passion and be present. And I, you know, ran from or buried, let's say, my desire to want to uh, be involved in humanitarian efforts. Um, so it, you know, it didn't, it didn't come out until later. And um, when finally, uh, when finally I had the freedom and the opportunity to, to experience all of this, it was shocking. Uh, I just felt um, rather powerless actually. And I think that's why I didn't do anything for so many years was because I was battling with the sense of feeling quite small against these big issues. And I said to myself what most people might, might say to themselves as they look at you know, what's going wrong with the world. How could I individually ever make a difference in any of this? And um, I'm so fortunate to have been able to have been pushed by, by I don't know what, um, a combination of gut feeling and um, just, I don't know, I was, I was led to, to be in front of it, to face it, and, and to take those baby steps in realizing that, that we can, each one of us can take part and make a difference in the world. And um, so little by little, uh, I was able to you know, int be introduced to and locate amazing small programs doing um, what, how we describe as doing some of the, the, the heavy lifting out there um, day in and day out and knowing that they're there and providing a, a foundation and a voice for what they do is, is, is a part of what, of what we do. And when other people know that they're out there and learn how courageous they are and how they're not backing down from the, from the problems that they're facing in the communities, it gives us this sense of, and this is the weird thing, it ends up turning back on us. You end up thinking if they if they can deal with this every day and make progress with these um, challenges and conditions every day, you know, what, what, what can I do is, you know, there, there, there must be um, some strength in me that I'm not tapping into. So it ends up both humbling you and encouraging you to find what's big and strong in, in yourself. And that, that was my experience in the later chapters of the book. The uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, I think does come through loud and clear. Like your, your book starts off with you going to India. This is before everything happens. Um, and you're there for a couple of weeks to try and help. And I, and I think you do kind of have some reflections about um, what sort of impact you could have and whether that those types of trips did any good or not. And, uh, um, and I was just wondering if you could kind of, because it, throughout the book, what you do is you see this, kind of this growth in your thoughts about being able to work with, with others. Can you just kind of talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. Well, so my first kind of big step, uh, my first big action step after doing all of this, um, 
moving around and seeing and observing was to finally um, take a trip where I was doing something. So I kind of scanned online what I could, could find. I knew I wanted to, to go to India because it had always kind of been a place that I was drawn to. So I signed up for this volunteerism trip, two weeks teaching um, at an orphanage in Chennai, uh, Chennai, India. And, uh, you know, I didn't think twice about it. I didn't think twice about the fact that I might not be prepared to do that, that I didn't think twice about um, bringing a sack of donating or, or of donated items. I didn't think that maybe it might be better for that stuff to come locally. I didn't think about any of it. You don't. So often um, in those early stages of wanting to do something, especially globally and in, in, in the global development world, we want to go and do four. That's, it's just, it's, it's just a natural kind of place to start. And unfortunately, it isn't the best place to start. It really isn't because, you know, what I found was that I was very ill-equipped to handle um, the traumas that some of these kids had faced. I, I, I didn't speak their language. Um, I didn't have the, the organization that had put together the trip, didn't organize anything for us formally to teach. So we were just kind of left on our own. Who was I from, from now we're well aware from a child protection standpoint to come in and out for two weeks, no background checks, no, you know, just access to children. It's just all wrong, frankly. And it, um, it needs some serious um, kind of dissection at this point. And, and luckily um, that's, that's happening, but it is our assumption that, um, that we can come in from our kind of Western um, perspective and um, from our Western you know, lives and that we have the ability with that privilege to make a difference in the life of an Indian child who is um, you know, coming from a very poor background and may not have um, biological parents alive. So, you know, what, what is, you know, that, that there's a lot in that assumption um, and it, it, it isn't really the best place to start. Um, but we have to, at the same time, not inhibit ourselves from actually taking these steps that we need to take. So that, that's the slippery slope at this point in time with where we are with, you know, do good trips and, and holidays. We have to create something that's safer for um, and more respectful to the to the people and places that we are visiting, and uh, also that for for those of us who want to do good, provide more of an educational background so that we understand the context of these issues, and um, that we put in check our um, you know um, assumption that we can actually provide the solution. Um, so there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the 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 volunteerist market and in combining um, service trips with, you know, um, your, our desire to want to, to give back in places that are in need. Thank you for sharing that. And, and one of the things I wanted to make sure that I point out is that like um, you had a lesson that you learned about uh, orphanages and uh, that I, I want to make sure that I brought to kind of had a little talk uh, discussion about where orphanages and volunteers kind of, there's some sort of industry that kind of pops up there that uh, um, had a kind of a little strange, funny feeling to it, I guess, for you. And I was wondering if you could kind of share that, th those thoughts. Well, late, later on. So I started my first, uh, you know, big 
experience in an orphanage and came home and I knew it didn't feel right. I knew it didn't feel right. Um, not because I had any proof of anything having gone really wrong, but it was just a sense that I knew that those children had not benefited from, from my visit. But, you know, it's such a popular um, first step, as I was saying. And when you have such a great desire on the part of someone who wants to give, um, and you put that together with um, regions of the world uh, in need, it's, it's really kind of ripe for corrup corruption. So what has happened in many areas around the world, um, and we know this because we work um, deeply in this arena now, is that there is a demand from the market, the Western market, to have these experiences in orphanages. And if the demand is greater than the number of kids you have in the orphanages, then what do you do? You find ways to get children in these orphanages. And unfortunately, what's happened is that um, there's been a huge amount of child trafficking into phony, you know, fake um, orphanages in popular tourist areas around the world, like Kathmandu, Nepal, Siem Reap, Cambodia, um, places where, you know, um, there are large numbers of tourists going and wanting to pop in and do their week or 10 days or even one or two days of, of, of you know, service. And what it's done is it's fueled uh, an industry um, where children are trafficked and, um, and it's very, very unfortunate. And it's all um, driven by good intention. It's just intention that is not based on knowledge. It's based on, um, it's based on ignorance. And it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, that's, that's what's happened. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I, I don't think a lot of people would, you know, with your work, that's one of the things that you've, you know, basically discovered, just had some ideas that existed, but then the more you, you work in those areas and becomes kind of obvious, I think. And, and I think that's, it's important to share that information because that's something that uh, you could see how it would grow out of it. I mean, there's, if people think there's a need, then the need becomes real. <laughs> so that's kind of the corrupt side of the story, but there, there's also another side of the story. And that's that um, if you're funding uh, residential care institutions or, or shelters for children, even children who aren't orphans, what, what is happening is that parents from, from villages in difficult conditions and situations and, um, are willing and want their children to be put in these residential care institutions because they believe it's a better um, chance for them to, to start a new life. And so what you have is you have um, you're reinforcing this, this movement into residential care and away from families. And it's, it's a proven fact that a child is better off in his or her own family, um, even if that family is suffering. So in terms of, um, you know, philanthropic dollars and the giving industry, you know, supporting that this endless desire to support orphanages and shelters for children and then visit them, you know, really pulls away from the funding that needs to go in to strengthening families so that those children do not have, have to, to look at that as, a, as an option or parents don't have to look at that as an option. So that's what we're doing now as a, as a foundation is redirecting that funding and support and advocacy towards families and communities so that the strength comes, you know, to those grassroots so that there isn't a need for institutional care. But, the, you know, the, the, the Western world doesn't really know that or see that. They, they want their experience and it feels good. Um, even if you're not traveling, it feels good to write a check for a shelter. It just does. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's an easy thing to do. 
Right. So let, let's shift to a little happier topic here. We got uh, um, you along the way, you des- you start this desire that you'd like to um, expand your family a little bit and you end up uh, adopting a, a young lady and uh, her name's Isabel. Can you talk about uh, Isabel a little bit? Well, uh, along the way, uh, just felt like we, we had not only seen a lot, but that we'd been granted um, such beautiful things in life and that we had room in our family for more. So um, instead of having our own third biological child, we adopted Isabel from, from China and she, um, she's 14 now and thriving and it's been a journey in itself. You know, I think it's, um, again, something that can be idealistic and not, you know, not an easy road, um, for, for any child who comes into the world, uh, with, with a loss. So, but it's been a very, very beautiful journey and one of great strength on her part. And, um, yeah, if there are other families out there who have adopted, I'm, I'm sure they know it's, uh, it's a different, it's a different road that has different ups and downs and, uh, also a lot of, uh, very beautiful lessons in there. It's an, it's an amazing part of your book, um, because especially the impact, cause you include the notification that you've, you're going to be able to adopt her. And I think that's, that's, that's a neat sort of feeling that happens right there. So <laughs> that, that excellent. That's yeah, a different announcement than your water breaking. <laughs> it's an email that says you can come and pick her up. So um, we are actually just planning our first trip back to China where she will you know, reconnect with those roots and her country and her native country. And, you know, as we were saying before about being a blend of different places and um, cultures, she, she definitely experiences that. So uh, an important trip for her to, to rediscover uh, her beginnings. Excellent. So, you know, we're getting closer to, to wrapping up and what I'd like to do is um, kind of shift gears here. You're co-founder of Go Philanthropic and uh, would you like to share a little about its creation, its purpose and its mission and where you kind of are today? Sure. Well, there are two entities. One is Go Philanthropic Travel. So that's where we started out. After all of the ex- these experiences, I decided to, to begin the social enterprise, um, which basically put together trips for people where they could see and discover the world, but they could also meet and hear from uh, really inspiring programs working at the grassroots and, and facing and making great impact in, um, in important areas like child trafficking and child labor and gender inequity and um, a lack of access to, to health and health services and education and basic human rights. So these organizations are out there. They're incredibly, incredibly courageous. Um, And I wanted a way to connect them to people who are visiting the area anyway. And I thought it was just a shame that people came and went and didn't know of their good efforts. And that I felt like if you could put them in a room together, that good things would come. So we created Go Philanthropic Travel. And then later we um, were so... Um, inspired by the work that these organizations were doing that we wanted to help them further. Um, so we developed the foundation, which is an international grant-making um, organization uh, based out of the U.S., and we're able to help them with their funding, but also help them um, in areas that they have need within their organizations to become stronger and more self-reliant. So um, really, ultimately, what I want to say about that is that uh, com- we, we see communities in, quote, need as if they 
they are lacking something, but they are really full of potential, full of assets, full of resources, ideas, innovation, all of it. Um, and if we can be collaborators in, in them bringing all of that uh, forth, then I think we're going to see that the change that we need to see um, uh, as opposed to assuming that, you know, we can just bring those, bring those solutions to them. Excellent. The, uh, and I'll have uh, links to, cause, and actually let me just go ahead and ask this. Uh, where would be the best place to, you know, if somebody wanted to learn more, connect with you, find out more information, what's the best way to go? Where, where would you send them to? Well, LydiaDean.com um, is a good place to start because I have a connection to the foundation from there, to traveling, um, to book, uh, to the book, which can be found on Amazon. If it's the global issues here that really, um, you know, resonate with, with anybody who's listening, then I would definitely have them go to gophilanthropic.org directly because you can learn about all sorts of global issues. You can really um, see very clearly how you can get involved and make a difference. If you want to travel and, and, and observe and learn and connect in person, which is really kind of how it started for me, um, go philanthropic anthropictravel.com. Uh, we've got great trips uh, all throughout the year, uh, small group trips, and they're really pretty, pretty life-changing. Um, so yeah, between all of those sites, it should help, um, you know, direct people where they, where they want to go, depending upon what, what matters to them. Excellent. And I will have uh, um, all those links in the show notes. So uh, anybody who uh, um, is listening and uh, would like to find all those, uh, you don't have to pull over right now. I'll, I'll have them in my show notes. So that'll be good. So excellent. So, you know, the last question, if you had a chance to talk with an audience of parents who have young children, do you have a life lesson you'd want them to hear? Well, um, I think that as parents, when we jump our own picket fences, when we embrace um, who we are and what we're passionate about and what we dream about, and we kind of take a risk uh, in, in creating a life around that, um, because it, is, it does feel like a risk in the moment, uh, I think our kids can only benefit because to have that example um, you know, as parents, I think we give them license to do the same and then we encourage them to do the same naturally. And isn't that what we want for them? We don't want them to, to follow somebody else's, you know, prescribed path. We want them to follow their dreams and, and the world will be a better place when everybody's doing that really well. So, you know, we kind of need to walk that walk ourselves and then it naturally happens with our children. But it's, uh, it, it's tough, but I, um, in, in my life, it's only, um, it's only shown me good things. Awesome advice. Love it. And uh, Lydia, thank you so much for talking with me today. Jumping the Picket Fence is an amazing book. Your journeys and focus are inspiring. Your pursuit of the unknown is heart pounding. And I want to share the quotation that you used towards the end of the book, which um, you label as a Navajo blessing. It says, go forth in peace, be still within yourself and know that the trail is beautiful. I love that. Um, wishing you the best in all that you do. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, 
Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.